Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank uh, each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour for making this show economically viable. Uh, for the second hour of today's show, our sponsors are Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Goldrich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Gene Epstein. He's an economist, uh, I believe, of the Austrian School of Persuasion, and he's also uh, uh, a political uh, a libertarian. Uh, he joined Barron's in February of 1992 as a commodities editor. Uh, the following year, he became the weekly, uh, the weekly magazine's first economics editor and uh, the first to write the column Economic Beat. His responsibility to this day uh, in, uh, uh, is doing that, uh, writing that column. In October 2010, he also became the Barron's book review editor. Before joining Barron's, uh, Mr. Epstein did a 13-year stint at the New York Stock Exchange, mainly as a senior economist. He has taught economics at the City University of New York and St. John's University and holds a master's uh, degree in uh, that subject from the New School and a bachelor's uh, degree in History from Brandeis University. Gene also wrote a book in 2006 titled uh, Econo Spinning, How to Read Between the Lines and uh, When the Media Manipulate the Numbers, and that was published uh, by John Wiley back in, again, 2006. I recently met Gene at an objectivist meeting in New York, uh, the same one I referred to uh, when I introduced Alana Mercer. Actually, uh, Alana was the month before. Uh, Gene was uh, the, the keynote speaker at the uh, at the latest one uh, in June. Um, he, at that meeting, uh, the New York Junto meeting, I should mention, is in Midtown New York. And I, as I did earlier, encourage you to check it out. It's uh, uh, you can go to www.nycjunto.org, nycjunto.org, 
Gene Epstein uh, was a speaker there, uh, Alana Mercer the, the month before, and I think lots of good uh, speakers. If you're interested in an objectivism, interested in free markets, interested in a sort of really understanding what's happening in the U.S. economy as opposed to the, um, the mainstream uh, explanation of what you get, uh, I think you'd, you might want to consider going to this meeting. Well, in, in any event, uh, welcome, Gene, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Really good to have you with us. Thank you, and uh, thank you for the uh, pitch on behalf of Junto, uh, especially since I'm going to become uh, the moderator of Junto uh, in uh, in coming uh, months, and uh, I'm going to structure it uh, hopefully in a much in a in a somewhat more focused way. Uh, it's been pretty good, but I think it can be better. And I'm also going to be getting, I think, a whole lot of exciting speakers. So uh, I appreciate oh. the plug. That is that really excellent especially. to know. Uh, it, uh, yeah, I, I think that I think it will get better. Yeah. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly more uh, formalized and probably more organized and more structured. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, it it's been quite good already. But I, yes. I'm really delighted to hear that. I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. happy to hear that. Well, you know, yeah, I'm interested. I have never read your book, Econo Spinning, but it reminded me when I was looking over this of an article in the front page of the New York Times recently, in which the Times was suggesting that the Chinese economy, the economic statistics coming out of China. China are very suspect, and that uh, for, for various political reasons, the local uh, the local heads of governments falsify. At least that's the 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 uh, the, the, um, the charge yes. mm-hmm. that they falsify the data, and that what we get from the uh, you know from the Chinese government is probably maybe a little inflated. Uh, and the, the article went on to talk about how there's a buildup in the coal supplies and the electricity production yes. uh, being used as a means to try to measure what is really going on in the Chinese economy as opposed to what the statistics are saying. Yes. Do you, uh, do you, given the fact that you are concerned about echo spinning, mm-hmm. do you have opinion, an opinion on, on, that, uh, on that issue in China? I thought it was uh, pretty persuasive. There's uh, no question that in a country like China, as indeed uh, uh, most notoriously in uh, in the former Soviet Union, uh, when it was a Soviet Union, uh, our own mainstream economists like Paul Samuelson were believing the statistical claims hmm. of countries like that. And unfortunately, China is clearly uh, too authoritarian a country to be trusted. Uh, I will say that I have uh, asserted to readers over many years that if our own statistical bureaucracies were similarly corrupt, then the stories would have come out long ago. Then plenty of people would have been uh, whistleblowers who had worked mm-hmm. there, um, and uh, we would have known about it. As a matter of fact, uh, no such corruption has ever been pinned on our own statistical agencies, and we can be to some degree proud of that, which isn't to say they don't have a lot of problems, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that isn't one of them. In fact, my econo-spinning uh, notion was mainly addressed at, uh, at the way uh, newspapers like the New York Times, and even to some degree like my sister publication, Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, um, continually uh, get the numbers wrong, mm-hmm. and uh, for reasons that are much more prosaic than sheer corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was the main purpose of my book, although I think it failed in the attempt to uh, completely uh, give, in my original aim was to uh, give a complete guide to how to read between the lines when the media manipulate the numbers. I failed in the attempt because those problems are a hydra-headed monster. They never stop. Um, there's constant misinterpretation of data all the time uh, on the part of our media. Hmm. And why do you think that is? 
it just well, it's a combination of things. To... I think it's it, to some degree it's sheer laziness. Uh, mm-hmm. I focused a lot on uh, Paul Krugman, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, no, now Nobel Prize winner from the New York Times, and I think part of his problem uh, was simply that he didn't have the humility to call the statistical agencies and find out exactly how they're measuring things. One of the problems is that while the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Bureau of Economic Analysis, uh, do uh, put out numbers with an attempt to be honest, they're, they're often opaque, they're often troubled and problematic, and they don't give you sufficient warnings. Mm-hmm. You have to spend time on the phone talking to these people, mm-hmm. finding out what the numbers really consist of, whether there are breaks, whether there are problems. Uh, most recently, in fact, uh, there's been a rather egregious uh, mistake uh, on the part of the media, a part of many, uh, with respect to the numbers on the duration of unemployment, the, the unemployment spells that people uh, ha- um, spend uh, there's been this idea that we are at a record high off the charts with respect to long-term unemployment. And I recently looked at the numbers because there are so many problems with the data, with the way the BLS measured it uh, prior to 1994. I found, in, in fact, that uh, the uh, duration of unemployment is about the same as it was in the early 1980s. Mm. Um, that there is, and the reason it matters, the reason it's significant, is because there has been this mantra that usually happens when we have high unemployment that we have structural problems. Mm-hmm. That because duration is so long, it indicates that people simply cannot find jobs because mm-hmm. they've been they're, they're dislocated from their industries and can't get back uh, in the job market in any meaningful way. And mm-hmm. uh, since duration is no high than it was in the early 1980s, and since the labor markets eventually did sort themselves out in the 1980s, there's no reason to believe why the labor markets can't sort themselves out today if mm-hmm. only we had um, the kind of economic growth that we had in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's very interesting, and uh, I would, we've had an economist on this show named John Williams. I don't know if you know the name or not. Oh, John, I do know John, yeah. I do know John. Uh, and, and John has talked about, uh, well, he's, he's looked at the way, I don't think he's, he's saying that there's, um, uh, you, you know, that the statistics are wrong. It's no. just that, the, that we calculate things differently than we did, for example, hedonic pricing and substitution in, in measuring inflation, and, uh, uh, and also he, in terms of the way we count unemployment. And, of course, the government does talk about those discouraged workers. That's a different measurement of unemployment. Uh, but John makes the point that our unemployment levels would be much higher and more akin to what they were in the 1930s than what we are led to believe if we use the same measure uh, as we did in the 1930s of every able, able-bodied person being, uh, being able to work, being in the employment force. But I guess you probably don't agree with John on those, well, on those issues. Well, uh, you know, uh, I've, been, I've had a peculiar role. I admit uh, I've got a lot of friends uh, among the Austrians, a lot of friends uh, who are free market economists, uh, and they, they tend... Uh, to be very doom and gloom, mm-hmm. and they tend uh, to believe that the government numbers are always a sham and always a scam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I do know John, and uh, unfortunately we do disagree about a lot. Now, if is he saying, for example, uh, that uh, the the government measures unemployment differently from the way it's done since 1948? I mean, it's a simple question that people are asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you uh, do you have a job? No. Uh, uh, have you uh, looked for a job over the last four weeks? Yes or no. If you have, then you're unemployed. If you haven't, 
then you're not unemployed. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you uh, and, and what did you do to look for a job? Well, if you just called a relative, uh, that's another question they ask. What did you do for look for, to look for a job? And you say, I called a relative, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then uh, about a job. That counts. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fine. Now, mm-hmm. if you are unemployed and, uh, and and you want a job, wouldn't you have done at least something over the last four weeks to look for a job? Mm-hmm. That's such a stringent uh, requirement. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it is. And so I actually think the Bureau of Labor Statistics is reasonably honest with that sort of mm-hmm. thing. They're pretty liberal. In fact, mm-hmm. you don't have to prove it either, by the mm-hmm. way. I believe personally that lots of people receiving unemployment insurance who aren't, honestly do not want a job, but if, when, if they're asked, uh, do you want a job, they'll probably say yes. Um, mm-hmm. And so, again, you can say whatever you want, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics will believe you. It's based on a survey. Mm-hmm. So I think it's reasonably clear and honest as mm-hmm. to how it's calculated. And it's certainly sky high. I mean, this is a, we, do, we do have an 8.2% official unemployment rate. That's pretty disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and quite uh, a bit higher among uh, younger people, I believe. Well, it always is, of course. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's, sure. It's higher among younger people. And by the way, the duration of unemployment is always higher among older people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, when we had, look at it this way, in the, in the late 1990s, there was a boom. There was a hiring panic. Uh, there was an enormous uh, increase in the number of jobs in this country. Jobs were going begging. We had an officially quoted 4% unemployment rate. I would regard 4% unemployment rate as reasonably full employment for that sure. reason. Uh, so I, I, uh, I do have problems with John, even though probably ideologically in most other ways we would, uh, we would be in total agreement, and that's the reason why I don't especially take him on in my column. Well, Gene, I, I think it's, it's very good. Uh, the gloom and doom thing, and, and Lord knows we have our share of gloom and doomers on this show, yeah. uh, but, you know, it doesn't serve us well. What we really want to know is what is the truth. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, the value system is the same. We want free markets. We want freedom, uh, liberty. We want people to be happy and to pursue uh, the pursuit of, uh, of property and happiness, as we talked with Ilana Mercer in the first part of this show. Yes. Uh, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're here to talk to us because uh, I know your, your values are, are very similar to, to mine and most of the guests that we have on the show. Ron Paul was here yeah. with us. Lewis Lehrman was on a few weeks ago. We've had lots of libertarian types and um, uh-huh. so um, it, uh, um, so I, I, I thank you for that and I and I notice in your most recent column in Barron's that you are you know pretty pretty optimistic and you're not really seeing things as, as being all that terrible right now in the economy is that is that um, is well, that basically yeah, you see that's that's true in a sort of a yes and no sense uh, you know it's uh, if I would say that in, in a uh, in, in a no sense that if it's optimistic to believe that we're going to muddle through with 2% growth mm-hmm. when uh, if we truly had uh, the kind of expansion that we had in the early 1980s or the one that followed uh, the recession uh, in the mid-70s, we'd be, we would be at 6% growth, uh, mm-hmm. 5% at least, uh, when if we truly had a free market uh, without uh, the deadly hand of government, we'd be probably at a steady, you know, 7 8% growth. Mm-hmm. That would be normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, 2% is sick. It's, mm-hmm. it's nothing. And uh, it's barely enough, uh, given the way the labor markets uh, work, to bring down the unemployment rate, except in very, very slow degrees. So it's pretty scandalous that, that we are where we're at at the moment. However, there has been growth. There has been a recovery uh, since uh, mid-99. We should be thankful for that. There have been more jobs. And uh, I believe, uh, 
if you if I can stroke uh, strike the, the the most extreme note of optimism for for perhaps many people listening to your show, I believe there is still a good chance, as I wrote a, in a cover story in Barron's uh, a few months ago, that there could be we could see Dow fifteen thousand in two years. Uh, if we don't. It'll certainly be a terrible commentary on the way capitalism is operating because uh, the the stock market is way behind its normal progress. Uh, inflation adjusted over the last 140 years, the stock market should be returning over 6.5%, which means, by the way, that the market should be more like around 18,000 today. So mm-hmm. to forecast 15,000, I use the Dow because, of course, that's the number that people most readily understand. Sure. Uh, but so if we're if we're if we're this low, and if I'm forecasting fifteen thousand, that's extremely tame. That would mean that the market is still way below the trend. Uh, but uh, fifteen thousand certainly sounds optimistic to a lot of people. That's the reason why uh, I would be long the stock market, even though uh, some bad things have been happening. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly there are some primary economists that have been on the bearish side. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. um, uh, Rosenberg, um, David, is it David? Uh, David Rosenberg, yeah. David Rosenberg, I think we heard him this morning on, uh, yeah. on Bloomberg talking about it. Uh, very, very bullish, turning bullish, which you know, says something to me. Um, I'm sorry, Rosenberg has turned bullish this morning? I didn't hear. Uh, fairly so, I, I would oh, say I so. And okay. uh, yeah, and so you know, when a guy like that is, uh, is obviously free to to uh, call it the way he sees it, and that's yeah. that's important too, because there are perma bulls that have uh, vested interest in perma bears that have a vested interest. So uh, it's always good to see that objective viewpoint. Uh, you coined the word capitalism. Uh, <laughs> tell our listeners what you mean by capitalism. Well, I got it from my uncle Abe, who's now deceased, uh, who uh, was a socialist, who had a very different meaning in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my case, uh, since it struck me that uh, the word capitalist, offensive as it is to the ears of some, is a nice contraction for another phrase that's been uh, commonly used of late, crony capitalism. Sure. Uh, Crony capitalism, why not just simplify it and make it capitalism? Uh, the word does appeal to me and does appeal to many. And of course, all it does mean is crony capitalism. And it's different from straightforward capitalism, mainly in that straightforward capitalism of the sort we do find here and there is a system of profit and loss. Um, crony capitalism or capitalism uh, is a system in which uh, business is generally sheltered from losses and only knows profits. And when it's sheltered from losses and only knows profits, it, the business behaves irresponsibly. Uh, even, by the way, even very profitable businesses in a capitalist system know losses all the time. They see products that don't work out, ventures that aren't working out, uh, different, in fact, staff or, 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 or executives who aren't working out, they have to cut their losses all the time mm-hmm. in order to make profits. And in the uh, talk I delivered that you attended, in which I talked about how the financial crisis was a crisis of capitalism, mm-hmm. I meant in particular uh, that the banker we love to hate the banker who was afraid of losses, who wouldn't give us a mortgage uh, because our credit wasn't good, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, our job prospects didn't look great, uh, or for any number of reasons, that starch-collar banker we love to hate got replaced by the capitalist banker who would give us a mortgage no matter what. Mm-hmm. And that capitalist banker was, of course, 
persuaded by government, to some degree got his arm twisted by government, got his arm twisted by the Justice Department, for example, to give to give uh, uh, mortgages to uh, to more and more minorities who was, were presumably, were apparently, according to the Justice Department, being discriminated against uh, because uh, they were minorities rather than in fact, being discriminated against, possibly because they weren't good credit risks, and more in particular, uh, of course, the the uh, the the organizations known as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, government-sponsored enterprises, publicly traded, but uh, but uh, whose debt was implicitly and now, of course, explicitly guaranteed by the federal government, were crony capitalist institutions par excellence that fueled the housing bubble. Mm-hmm. So that's an evil. It, it caused, I believe. The, the terrible situation we're in now, the, the collapse of the economy in 80, in 2008-09 because of the collapse of the housing bubble that was created by that system, and uh, we're still living with fallout from, uh, from that system. Do you think that uh, we did right in bailing out the banks? Well, you know, that's a complicated question, which I have to partly duck. Uh, I, uh, I, I believe that to some degree in principle, uh, you, if you create, uh, if government creates a disease, it may have to distribute a vaccine. If it, if it distributes the heroin, it may have to distribute the methadone as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see, so in principle, I can't, uh, I can't condemn everything uh, that was done. Specifically, of course, there were cases in which uh, it did appear uh, that uh, it was uh, just, uh, you know, favorites of friends in government being bailed out, institutions that clearly had contacts uh, on Capitol Hill that were being bailed out. We can name a few. But in other cases, uh, whether uh, the bailouts were completely wrong, um, I, I couldn't challenge. I would respect anybody who's looked at it more closely who could tell me. Uh, in particular, for example, we have uh, a system in which we, are talk, we talk about prudential regulation of financial institutions, that if in the same breath we talked about prudential regulation of the delicatessen on the corner, it would be uh, sound ridiculous. We would mm-hmm. have to talk about how the delicatessen on the corner has to be taught how to, how to handle its operations, lest it go bust and lest it harm the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And the reason we treat those bankers uh, as though they're children and not responsible capitalists is because we protect them in so many other ways, because we have you know, federal deposit insurance that effectively uh, protects even people who have $50 million in the bank. No. Protects, in other words, all the customers of those banks, all the deposits of those banks uh, against loss. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if Barron's, my publication, had its subscribers completely guaranteed to us so that our, whether our subscribers pay up or not, uh, the government will pay us, mm-hmm. then how are we going to operate? We don't have to please our readership anymore. Oh, we don't exactly. have to act responsibly as capitalist institutions because we've got the government paying for us if, if our uh, readers don't come through for us. Similarly, the depositors don't care what the bankers, banks do anymore because those because the deposits are insured, and 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 in that way, the crony capitalist system flourishes. The worst get on top, and therefore, we need prudential regulation from government of banks. We wouldn't need it. Uh, is my point. We wouldn't need it at all if those banks were forced to operate like the delicatessen on the corner. Yeah, they exactly. learned how to deal with the profit and loss system. 
Yeah, exactly. I know. I know. We we had a discussion with Ron Paul, Lou Lehrman, and uh, and before yeah. that, a, a former Federal Reserve economist named Bill Bergman was on our show from Chicago, Chicago Fed, and uh, we we asked a question about um, fractional reserve banking, and yeah. and uh, Bill's position was, well, yeah, I think banks should be free to do that, but we shouldn't be bailing them out. We shouldn't be insuring them, making uh, and, and protecting uh, and protecting depositors. Uh, you know, banks would be free. To do what they want to do, but they're going to have to pay the price, and the shareholders and the bondholders would suffer rather than the taxpayers. But clearly, that's capitalism is what we have. Capitalism, as you coined the phrase, I think it's an excellent description of what's going on. You spent a lot of time at the Junto uh, uh, talk that you gave a, a few weeks, a couple of weeks back, uh, talking about Paul Krugman and some of the. Um, well, you, you talked about Paul Krugman. Uh, would you classify him as a capitalist? <laughs> Well, um, he's uh, he's not in business except in uh, in a uh, in a vague sense. Uh, he uh, no. How would I classify him? I would I would say that uh, he's uh, somebody not worth reading uh, for the simple reason that uh, if, for example, uh, you know, I were told that uh, half uh, the science section of the New York Times were completely misleading and wrong, mm -hmm. I'd have to quit reading it because I wouldn't know which half. Mm -hmm. you know, most people don't have the time uh, to check on Paul Krugman's accuracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a Nobel Prize winner who literally wrote, uh, I believe it was in 2008, he literally wrote that the government-sponsored enterprises I mentioned in my uh, talk, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, were not permitted to uh to to buy uh high risk mortgages as a matter of law mm. that it, that there was a law against it mm. uh, this was something that that if i wrote this at barons uh the fact checker would underline it try to check that fact then come see me and mm -hmm. say i couldn't verify this fact where is this law that forbids Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac from buying mortgages in fact there was no such law so i mean this is a colonist who can engage in such and such whoppers uh, and get away with it because even though, by the way, the New York Times apparently does have fact-checkers, he does not get fact-checked. So he can make up anything that comes into his mind, and some amazing things do. Uh, as I also mentioned in my talk, by the way, Paul Krugman, when he was assessing what happened um, it, uh, during the boom and bust, uh, literally wrote in a very long article that got a lot of attention that it all happened despite the Federal Reserve's best efforts. That was his only mention of the Federal Reserve. He lives in sort of this ideological bubble, mm -hmm. not to uh, overuse the term bubble, uh, in which he believes, uh, he falls back on this default position, that the only role that government institutions can possibly play, like the Federal Reserve, is to be part of the solution. It's mm -hmm. never possible for them to be part of the problem. Yeah. So he no. kisses it off that way. But in fact, Paul Krugman himself... Uh, if he actually reads his own columns, was advocating, uh, in, in a way with mixed feelings, but was advocating that the Federal Reserve bring about a housing bubble. And in 2005, he wrote extensively about how, in his view, the Federal Reserve had brought about the housing bubble and that it was dangerous, that if it collapsed, then there could be hell to pay. Mm -hmm. um, he forgets this. Uh, Contradictions. He, uh, he, lives, he puts his own articles down a memory hole and writes something else the next day. He lives each day as though it were his first. Yeah, um, so It's amazing what he's capable of. Well, it, it, uh, we have to thank Eugene uh, and other, uh, other journalists for, bringing, uh, for holding this man accountable. Uh, it, it is very important. Uh, of course, 
you know, it's, it, it reminds me a little bit of Bernie Madoff, and nobody really answered, uh, asked any serious questions of Bernie Madoff yeah. for the longest time. Yeah. And in, in some ways, maybe Krugman is doing as much damage as Bernie Madoff did. I mean, maybe I'm out of line in saying that, but well, you're... you're not. Not not. There's nothing wrong with such analogies. Uh, you know, Bernie Madoff was, you know, is a nonviolent criminal. I don't know if I'd even put him behind bars. Maybe he should just, you know, earn a few bucks to to make good on all the losses that he's incurred. He's not mm-hmm. not somebody I would spit on, even though he did terrible things. I wouldn't. Uh, I I said. Krugman is, 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 is in an intellectual sense, as a journalist, he's got Madoff uh, credentials, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. well, it's, uh, well it's, uh, it's good to shine the light on criminals, and that's what uh, good journalists do. I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. We're out of time. We would really, I have a couple more pages of questions that I have ready for you, obviously. Uh, all we need to do is turn the, uh, turn the dial, and, and you will go, go, go with, uh, with lots of good insights. Thank you very much, Gene, sure. for being with us. And I look forward to catching up with you at the next Junto. That would be great. See you then. My pleasure. Don't go away. Uh, we're going to be right back with Arch Crawford. He'll talk to us a little bit about what he sees uh, in the heavenly bodies that might give us some sense of where the markets are going. Well, we'll hear uh, if you think that's crazy. Let's, let's talk to Arch Crawford. He'll be right with us after the break. Don't go away. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Arch Crawford. He's the author of Crawford Perspectives. That's an excellent newsletter that looks at the heavens for hints about what might be happening here on Earth. Welcome back, uh, Archie, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Delighted to be here. Really good to have you here. I hope your air conditioning is working down there in Tucson, Arizona today. Is it? 
it's we're definitely working, and it's uh, working hard. It's been a hundred most of the last ten, twenty days. Yeah, hundred, but low humidity, so doesn't bother you, right? Uh, when it gets over a hundred, it bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think so. The only guys that really like that are the um, well, the rattlesnakes like it, I guess. Um, yeah, they anyway, don't move around until it gets over seventy-seven. Yeah, so they're 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 in seventh heaven during this time. Um, speaking of seventh heaven, Arch, what what do you say to people that that discount astrology as hocus pocus? Well, some very uh, straight up people have uh, used it for a long time, like J.P. Morgan and uh, the head OPEC negotiator for twenty years, and. Uh, and me, and I just, uh, I didn't like it or not like it. I just calculated the percent changes in the Dow Jones. So mm-hmm. I have uh, only to say, okay, well, this aspect, it's been up so much of the time, and this aspect, it's been down so much of the time. Mm-hmm. So I don't, uh, usually they don't approach me because uh, they're not interested in what I do. So I don't mm-hmm. get hassled by them very much. Yeah. Well, certainly, uh, so what you're saying is this uh, statistical significance, uh, uh, if I understand what you're saying, is that it does pay off. You're not saying that you know with certainty, but the likelihood or the probability of things happening, uh, you feel that it gives you an advantage in knowing that. Well, I was number one stock market timer in 1987 and 1994 and 2008 and number two in 2002. Number one bond market timer in '94. Number one gold market timer in 2006. And that was, I think, the Hulbert. Just luck. Folks. What's that? <laughs> what was that, Arch? Just been lucky a little, I suppose. Well, I don't know. That's a lot of times to be lucky. Uh, if it happened once, you might say, "Yeah, you were lucky." But you've had a number of successes like that, and that's out of a large field of people. I suppose it's the the Hulbert. Newsletter that follows that. Well, it's that's a combination of both Holbert and Timer Digest. Oh, okay. Both of them. Okay. Watch a and, lot of people. And how many other newsletter writers are included in that? It's a large number. Uh, I think around around 250. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're using well, they're they're over 200, and they watch over 500 different accounts for those 200 plus people. Okay. Very interesting. All right. Well, in any event, so. There is a reason to pay attention to what you write, and I do, and that's for sure. It's very interesting to start with. Uh, you sent out an alert last week, I think it was on Friday, warning uh, that the markets could have some tough times ahead, and it turned out to be very right on Monday. I think the markets bounced back today. I'm looking at the S&P up uh, 9.5 points, the NASDAQ up 22. Uh, the Dow is up today strongly, too, at 68 points. Uh, well, talk to our listeners. Talk about uh, what did you tell your listeners last week? And more importantly, on Monday of this week, you put out another uh, Crawford's Perspective, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it, um, alert. Uh, not, what, not this what, Monday, no. So you what, mean for next Monday? Uh, okay, okay, for I, next I'm, I'm not... I'm sure. I'm not sure what you're saying exactly. Okay. Well, you put out one June 22nd. That's uh, that's this Monday, right? Yes. And that was to instruct your people this week. No, no. I put it out Friday. Oh, I see. Okay. It said about that it would be down hard on Monday. Okay. And I'm mm-hmm. going to do that again this week because in the letter we have all these dates in the letter already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Um, 
I think the uh, 29th will be Monday, right? Uh, yeah, the 29th would be Monday. That's correct. Yeah. Um, well, and you put out one on the 22nd, which was last week. Okay, that's right. right. I so got I'll you. put out another one this Friday saying it's just a reminder to the people who who already have the letter and have consulting, uh, just to remind them that on June 29th we say bad news in the morning, bad news in the evening, bad news Saturday. Be mm-hmm. short for this weekend. Mm-hmm. Again, that's uh, I'm going to do that on Friday. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'm noticing uh, just just to taking uh, taking a look here at your June 22nd uh, issue that was last Friday. Uh, you said, um, let's just say the quote you're here. You said uh, this should this should be quite a tense but interesting weekend, meaning last weekend again, mm-hmm. uh, only more so. Uh, there is an extremely rare double grand cross in the sky on Sunday. So the question is. Uh, so I take it that the double cross is a reason that you are warning your subscribers about this coming weekend. What is it about the uh, the grand the double grand cross that's important? Well, that uh, a grand cross is one of the most negative and powerful planetary alignments, and this had two of them in last week's weekend's uh, sky on Saturday on on Sunday actually most of it, um, and that. Had some, you know, pretty bad news coming out of it, and it was uh, like news out of Europe primarily. But there were other things going on too that were pretty bad news, and also can be earthquakes. It can be natural disasters as well as things that affect the market. Mm-hmm. So um, the the main uh, alignment that was forming one of the grand crosses was the first of the Uranus Pluto squares. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming up to this uh, 29th, the sun is going to oppose the Uranus and uh, oppose the Pluto and square the uh, Uranus. So it's going to touch off that powerful pattern that we're going to have uh, seven of over the next three and a half years, and they are highly correlated with major depressions and major wars. Mm -hmm. So the sun is going to hit it uh, Monday and probably activate those same energies again. So I'm going to be uh, especially short for that. But now, we've been short since uh, March the 14th in the newsletter, uh, 100%, but not using margin. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we get up to the first opposition of Mars to Uranus, that begins uh, a very dangerous period that I t- titled the Mars-Uranus crash cycle. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you have a setup, either fundamentally or technically, during that period, then the market will crash. It's a two-year period, and we do not have a crash every two years. But when we have a technical or, or fundamental setup for it, now we've got so many balls. The, the, the juggler has so many balls in the air that if anything goes wrong, the market will crash during the period from 18 July to the end of February 13. Mm-hmm. That's a long, a long time, uh, a long period there, Arch. That you're saying you're going to be short that period and, and even double short that period. Well, I, I remember that I was number one, uh, first ever assistant to the top technical guy on Wall Street. So mm-hmm. I will follow this timing with the technicals, but I will probably go 
200% if the technicals support it even halfway mm-hmm. from around, I don't know, July 15th or 18th. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are you using to short the market? What instruments are you using? Well, I do different things in the letter and different things in my own account. Sure. Which I, you know, too too crazy in my own account that are things I wouldn't recommend. That you wouldn't tell your subscribers to do. I do put options in my own account. But Uh in the letter, uh, we are rated against the Dow Jones and against the Uh S&P, different ways, mostly against the S&P. But um, we give specific points to short and to cover um, in the Dow and the S&P. Mm-hmm. So um, you can do that with your own ETFs or your own uh, stocks that you like or dislike uh, when those things uh, may major indices are bullish or bearish. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, there are plenty of instruments out there to use these days. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and we, I talk about some of them in my own newsletter as well. But I guess a lot of people would wonder... Um, you know, how often do these alignments occur? And if you could give us some sense of what the statistical significance is of these, these alignments that you're talking about, the Uranus-Pluto uh, square, for example. Well, that hasn't happened since the 1930s. Uh-huh. And that's when it last happened. Right. And before that, in the, um, I think, 1840s, and then before that in the 1780s or 90s. So, so there's not a large there's not a large amount of um, statistical evidence, but uh, but when it has happened, things have not turned out well in the markets. That's correct. Uh, in a big way, not just uh, yeah. you know a plus minus. It's not just a coin toss against the head or tails. Yeah, it's it's against uh, you know the the head and a penny versus the tails and a silver dollar. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, uh, what the skeptics would say a lot of times is, well, there's just not enough samples to be sure it's significant. What would you say to them? Well, I'd say that's correct. Mm -hmm. And that's why I don't depend on that alone (laughs) by any means. Why you're also looking at uh, regular technical analysis as well as fundamentals. Right, and a lot of shorter cycles that are Mm -hmm. astronomic-related. For instance, you know, if you look at the, uh, run the studies on just the moon cycles, um, you'll come up with a valid uh, statistical significance, but it's such a small uh, statistical significance, it's very difficult to make money on it. Mm-hmm. But if you wait until the markets are exhibiting uh, high volatility or emotionality, mm-hmm. then the turns, the biggest up days, the biggest down days, and the turning dates will be right on the moon cycles. Mm-hmm. And I showed that on CNBC when I was on for being uh, number one in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, ha- they showed that chart on CNBC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you picked a, a good year to be number one, 2008. Uh, yeah, most people lost their shirts that year for sure. Uh, almost everyone did. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I've predicted every crash that has occurred in my working career, and starting with 1962 when I was a technical analyst at Merrill Lynch. Mm. And I predicted it by technical analysis. There's still people there who were there who called me Crash Crawford. Crash Crawford. Crawford. From 62. Uh, how, do you, uh, how do you define a crash? Is it 20% or what No, I don't. I, I just take the worst eight market declines in the last hundred years. 
mm-hmm. and I measured that against uh, a lot of astro cycles, and I found that every one of them of the eight, uh, this I wrote the article in like '95 or '96. Um, every crash had occurred the same portion, 40 percent portion of the Mars Uranus cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, every crash. And uh, every huge decline uh, mm-hmm. of any significance over any period of time uh, mm-hmm. was in was at the same portion of that cycle, which is really extraordinary. Now that's a that's a uh, there are eight events. Now since then I predicted two more, including the uh, 2001, which by the way I predicted 9/11 that the United States would be at war, war around the weekend before that. Before it happened? Uh, the 7th or 8th of uh, September. I wrote that on the 4th of September. Hmm. And what caused you to, to predict that? Well, the United States' birthday is July 4th, and George Bush's birthday was July 6th. And that year, there was a lunar eclipse on July the 5th. Hmm. And I figured when Mars came up and activated that eclipse, that... God, uh, Mars being the god of war, and George Bush in the U.S. right there at the same point. I said, when Mars gets there, the U.S. will be at war. Hmm. Hmm. That eclipse. Well, I, I can tell you that a lot of people listening are going to think, so what? It seems like a lot of um, uh, coincidences, but I guess if coincidences happen so often, uh, then you have to start wondering. Uh, is it a coincidence or is there some relationship? I think one of the difficulties that a lot of people have is understanding it. You know, a lot of times if you don't understand things, it can kind of make you angry or upset or just want to ignore it. Well, the thing is about understanding, you know, the way science advances is people note coincidences. Yes, yes. And then they note more coincidences and then they run studies and get back data as much as they can sure. and forward, watch it forward for 50 or 100 years, and then, the, then it becomes science. <laughs> sure, sure. No, that's, that's exactly right, the scientific method. And, uh, and certainly uh, that's why, you know, even though it, it seems mysterious, uh, one of the reasons that I like to keep in touch with you and, and, and hear what you're having to say uh, is because there seems to be something to it. We can't understand all these things, but... Well, I have, I have, when I give my talk, I have uh, a great many charts of the day of the biggest things happening in the sky and what happened in the market right before and right after. Mm-hmm. And they're quite startling. And if you see that talk, which I will be putting in a book sometime, mm-hmm. um, if you're not at least interested, then you're some kind of dumb jerk. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, a lot of people are just sort of, uh, their brains are sort of deadened, I think, these days by, uh, uh, I suppose, sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the United States or whatever it is these days. We've got a lot of electronic uh, things that people use, and they're, um, I don't know, people are just sort of not really caring too much about what's going on to a great extent, it seems, or they just feel powerless to do anything about it, whatever the case. That seems Arch, to be true. Arch, what do you think, um, just within the last minute or so that we have going here, so what, what, are your, what are your predictions, both from your astrological point of view as well as the charts, uh, for the Dow and for the equity markets in general, going forward, let's say, over the next year? Well, as I say, I'm looking for major 
18th and the end of February. Um, but the the biggest and the, the nastiest pattern that we have uh, is April the 22nd of 2014. And I don't know if we'll get continents rising and sinking at that time or what will happen, but uh, I'm going to be hiding in a bunker if I'm still alive. Uh, so, so what you're talking about here in the immediate future is, is pales by comparison to what you're talking about longer term. Yes. Well, the thing is that this this Uranus-Pluto thing lasts for three and a half years mm-hmm. and is associated with every every time that we've had it that we can look back, it's been major depressions and major wars. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a little blip mm-hmm. three or four times, but it's a, like really, really major stuff happening mm-hmm. three or mm-hmm. four or five times. Uh, well, Arch, unfortunately, we're out of time. I uh, wish we had more time. We'll have you on again sometime real soon. How can people uh, avail themselves to your service? It's uh, Is it CrawfordPerspectives.com? Or what? Yes, CrawfordPerspectives.com, or the email is uh, CrawfordPerspectives at Earthlink.net, or you can Google Crawford Perspectives. It's now like 25,000 hits, mm-hmm. so you can find me. Okay, excellent. Well, good to know, Arch. Thank you so much uh, for these very interesting comments on the markets. Um, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be back uh, with some closing thoughts on today's show and also talk about next week's guest. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and just... uh to give you some of my uh, some closing thoughts about today's show, and also to tell you who our guests are for next week, uh, I do want to say that um, I think that uh, Clifton Star uh, Resources definitely looks like a very interesting story. I think it's a company that has great uh, potential going forward. Uh, Michelle Bouchard has been a very successful mining operator in the past. Certainly has the technical skills. Uh, three and a half million ounces uh, of gold there with lots of exploration potential. Uh, certainly there's a whole lot of gold mining companies that are looking very strong, uh, though the stock prices have not performed well. Uh, certainly the real price of gold has risen, and that is very important for the economics of the gold mining industry. As long as the big guys are making lots of money, and they are now, uh, I will remain bullish on the gold price no matter where the price goes. Now, uh, I didn't have a chance to talk to Archie about the gold price when we talked to him, but I did talk to him uh, off-air earlier today, and he's not so sure that we're going to have a rip-roaring bull market in gold continuing for any length. He thinks that ultimately gold rises to very high levels because he thinks the currencies are going to self-destruct and that uh, thereby default gold will be the, uh, uh, the only sort of monetary value left standing. Time will tell if, if that sort of extreme view holds up or not. Certainly we had a less extreme view, I think, uh, from Gene Epstein. Gene uh, is certainly uh, a, a respected economist, a, a journalist at Barron's for many years, uh, highly regarded, uh, takes a lot less of a, um, let's say, a, a drastic view of the economy. and uh, and But yet uh, he has a view, I think, that is in keeping with uh, most of us libertarians uh, with Alana Mercer and uh, other people that are on this show on a regular basis. So I think it's good to keep an open mind. You know, I know from personal experience, it's very easy to dig your heels into a viewpoint and then uh, and then uh, invest accordingly, and sometimes it can be very injurious. It's best if we keep an open mind for our own goods and sometimes maybe swallow our pride and say, mm, maybe I had it wrong, maybe... Uh, you know, it, it may not be the best way to sell newsletters if you admit that you're wrong sometimes, but it's the best way to go forward long term, I think, by looking at the truth and trying to figure out what is really going on as opposed to what we might, our egos might want us to believe or what our, uh, our vested interest might want us to believe. For example, if I take a short position in the market, then I have an interest in seeing the market go down, right? So, uh, I want to believe that I'm right, but sometimes the market doesn't go down. It goes up when I take a short position. Well, I have to re-examine my thoughts, uh, my, my process, my, uh, uh, my thought process for taking that position, and it's always good, I think, to have more moderate views like Gene Epstein as well as uh, more extreme ones. I think it's always important to keep an open mind and to think about things. Alana Mercer certainly is one who thinks about what's going on, uh, and I think that she is uh, extraordinary. Uh, barely scratched the surface with Alana, as was true with Gene Epstein as well. Uh, Gene could have gone on and on for a long time. Lots of things to talk about, lots of valuable things to talk about. Alana Mercer will have her back on sometime soon. 
uh, to talk more about the tragedy uh, that has taken place in South Africa uh, post-apartheid. Um, that's not in favor of apartheid, but just simply trying to look at the facts and what has really happened and the correlation between uh, the destruction of property rights and uh, and uh, liberty and freedom and uh, just a way of life that has been uh, significantly deteriorated in, in Africa and South Africa for both whites and blacks since uh, since that uh, post-apartheid uh, took place. So next week uh, we're going to have some very interesting people coming on with us, uh, uh, Luigi Zingales. He's written a book called Capitalism for the People, Recapturing the Lost Genius of American Prosperity. He's a professor at the University of Chicago and also James Turk of Gold Money Fame will be here to talk to us as well. I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my uh, producer, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.